Mary, I do have a surprise for you. Oh, God. Okay. I'm ready. So I turned 33 years old this week, as you're aware. Yes. Very exciting. So what do you think is something I asked for as a joke, but not as a joke? Uh, hmm. Hint, she's coming to my house later this week in a tight package, and that's not illegal. What? I got a Courtney for my birthday. <gasps> oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. I don't know if this is, makes me 33 or 13 or 8, but I'm getting a Courtney for my 33rd birthday. I'm so excited for you. Congrats. You. That's really beautiful. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to get a Courtney, but I didn't. Like, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about your birthday. So basically, I was like, I want a Courtney. I'm joking. Ha. And then I was like, I want a Courtney. And Mark thought that he could get them in stores. So he had a panic because they are not in. These are precious gifts. They are not in stores. We don't do stores. And he was going to drive to New York City, but then she also was not available there. So he ordered her off the internet and she's coming later this week. I don't like how mail order bride this sounds, but I am excited to have a Courtney here. She's older than me. She's 34. So it's really different. Um, Thank you for emphasizing that she's my age, which is, I guess, like old or yes. older, but Old, older, older wiser um marginally taller at least maybe um wow that's so exciting i mean the accessories alone are so inspiring like we need to get into it but like yeah i don't even know where to begin i mean first for everyone listening <laughs> welcome to american girls the podcast where we're reliving the american girls series book by book i'm mary i'm allison Courtney's caretaker. Courtney's caretaker. Courtney's ward. Your Courtney is your ward. You might say to put in Nelly terms. She's a ward of my estate. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. And what does that make her to me? Like I'm just sort of like I don't have any like legal obligations. I'm Not just yet. Around. Okay. Interesting. I I think you're a godmother type. I think you're distant in some ways physically, but emotionally yes. you're very close. You buy her birthday gifts that are a little bit too advanced for her age, but I'm okay with it. Okay. I like that. That does sound like me in some ways, so I will accept that role in your life. How was your birthday? You turned 33. Very exciting. Your birthday was yesterday. We're recording on September 22nd. Listen, my birthday was a Monday during a pandemic. Enough said. <laughs> However, a very exciting thing happened at the tail end of my birthday and into the next day, which is my sixth niece. I have five nieces and nephews was born. So the newest American girl listener was brought into the world and wow. she's very wonderful and lively and beautiful. So I'm very excited that she's here. What a great addition. Like she's so, so cute. Seen a pic. And yeah, I mean, it's a pandemic birthdays are tough, but you kind of, you kind of do what you need to do to make, to find some joy. So I'm excited that you got a Courtney and, you know, more importantly, you have a niece, but you know, it's like, it's what, what a time to be alive. Like Courtney's with us. It's all happening. And we're, you know, we're kind of dropping in. This episode is a little bit special, a little bit different. We had an opportunity to speak to a historian about a topic near and dear to our hearts and wallets, which is the Postal Service. That's right. And we thought, you know, we won't take up a lot of your time, Rebecca. Not Rebecca Rubin. Uh, 
another Rebecca who we spoke with. And we said, we won't take up a lot of your time. It was the fastest 90 minutes of our lives, I think. Yeah. And we thought, let's just give the people what they want and what they need. And we do have to address a kind of elephant in the room about our guest speaker's name. Yeah. So our guest speaker is Rebecca and her Twitter handle is at the other RBG. Now we are devastated as everyone is about the recent passing of RBG. And like, I almost can't speak about it because I'm genuinely just like so heartbroken and uh, this year just keeps getting worse and worse. But uh, we, RBG was very much still with us, the original RBG when we recorded this episode. So when we talk about that with Rebecca, just know we're speaking at a time before we were devastated and heartbroken by original RGB's passing. Yes, you'll hear us talk about her being the other RBG. We will say Rebecca Brenner Graham is a PhD candidate. So she's a historian at American University. She's also a teacher at a private school. She has really cool bylines in the Washington Post, Jewish Women's Archive, Contingent Magazine, and Public Seminar. She's written for the U.S. Intellectual History blog. She is so, so super smart. She taught us so many things like that the Postal Service and the Post Office are different. Did not know that. Didn't know that. She is specializing in writing about Sunday mail. So if this is something that you're passionate about, tune in. We talked a lot about democracy, how mail connects people. And the week that we recorded this, so many things were happening. We had this conversation with her about history of mail, American girls and democracy. And then, of course, the passing of RBG and then Courtney's release. And like these things, of course, are not all on the same playing field, but it's been a busy week. And the guard zine, it's waited, you know, 116 years. It, it can wait two more weeks. We just want to give everything its weight. Exactly. Yes. We need to give everything its due. And obviously, you know, we're thinking of all of you who are also mourning the passing of RBG and what that means for ourselves, for our country, everything else. So talking to the other RBG might just be one way of having a fun and educational distraction. So thank you to the other RBG for doing that. But before we would get into this episode, like so many of you have contacted us about the release of Courtney. And because we're so sad, we are not, you know, dismissing that sadness that we feel, but we are choosing to kind of embrace something that gives us joy, yes. not in an uncomplicated way, as we'll say, but you know, just you have to find the wins when you can or the moments of joy when you can in times that are really tough. So thanks to everyone who's reached out to us, who sent us all of the Instagram posts and everything. We just want to briefly discuss the future newest, or I guess like she's out now, the newest addition to the AG family. Courtney Moore is out. She lives in 1986. She lives in a blended family. If we've been asked to weigh on in on this once, we've been asked 1,986 times Correct. or we, we would not bring it up. Honestly, I think there's been so many brilliant quick takes already. Like this is the inception of American Girl. Inception <laughs> being the film, not the actual genesis. But I also love the take that, you know, she has a Molly doll, whereas we cannot acquire a new Molly doll Ooh, ourselves, which tough. is sort of meta. I think in some ways this is exactly where we thought the brand might go, which is doing something meta that hits millennials right where they are. Does it make you feel old, Mary? 
Um, yes, I guess in some ways. Like I've I I think I feel more old when I go onto a website and I see facets of my childhood presented as like vintage wear or nostalgia. Mm. I will just say this, like anyone who's nostalgizing CD Walkmans needs to like pump their brakes immediately because I have such vivid memories of riding on the bus to school and you hit a pothole and your new CD skips and then you have a scratch on the CD and it's like, what are you supposed to do? Cassettes are also being nostalgized. I sort of get that because I loved making playlists off the radio onto cassettes. So I think those have aged somewhat well, but it's really weird. I mean, how do you feel about this? It's weird to me that it's like she's out the year I was born. Yes. That's crazy. She is your elder in that way, right? Because she's between nine and 10 years old in 1986. So we're not exactly peers. I think one of the important aspects of this is Mattel obviously has made a new and solid commitment to telling more diverse stories and to be a more inclusive brand. And I don't think in a lot of ways that Courtney really advances that mission. I think that's kind of an obvious perspective to have. I was able to read part of the book. If you go on the website, you can read part of the book and we'll drop in again when we've read all of it at some point. I think there's different aspects of her story that will speak to people. You know, the fact that her parents are divorced and she's trying to grapple with how to maintain friends and also to live with step siblings. A thing that is not relatable to me is she loves the arcade and she loves to dance. So those things particularly (laughs) do not, they just, I'm just being candid. They don't speak to me in the same way that some of even Julie's accessories don't speak to me. The, The biggest piece that has kind of leapt out at me is Courtney coming out really pushed me to look back through a ton of catalogs and to think like, how how would Courtney appeal to me if I received her in a big glossy catalog? And I think because I'm so sick of screen time right now because of Mm. the pandemic, the fact that her toys are not analog, the fact that she kind of lives in a digital world is not appealing to me in September 2020. Will that change Sure. Also, am I their target audience? I think we are and we're not at the same time. Yeah, I think we are and we're not. I think the ideal interaction with this toy is for mothers and daughters to have conversations or sons about, you know, like, mom, what was it like when you had a boom box or, you know, like, (laughs) what is that? Or like, what's what was it like to go to an arcade and like only have video games like outside of your house and to the things that are not accessories, but as you're pointing or sort of absences in their childhood, like what was it like to grow up without social media? Basically, like you didn't have email. How did you get in touch with your friends? What's a landline? You know, like all of this stuff that these conversations about difference that were important to me, like when I got my Molly doll as a bridge to talk to my grandmother about her childhood because she grew up during Molly's era But I think it's, you know, it's weird because I can't imagine it's just it's mind blowing to me, like how this is all happening. But it's also I it does resonate with me that it's only a very specific kind of mother daughter, mother child duo. Mm. Like you have to like it, it does foreground whiteness. It does foreground privilege and all these things that I really genuinely thought the brand was moving away from. So that is like the cloud of disappointment over all of this. Again, it's like I don't want to discard the entire thing because 
I, you know, I'm hoping that the brand, this was not conceptualized in light of everything that's gone on recently no. in the past year. Not to say that these have not been longstanding issues. My hope is that the brand will continue in that direction. I don't know. Like I have to keep some kind of optimism in my life because otherwise it's like, what am I doing? I think Courtney hits on two nerves that are especially sort of prominent among millennials, which is one, she does make you ask if you're old. And I've learned from Gen Z TikTok that we don't like that as sort of a generation. Um, I've always felt 40. So I don't know. I'm just in like a different mental place maybe. But I I think the other thing is Courtney is sort of a remix of a remix. It's like she inhabits a different universe in which Molly exists and I think, you know, she's sort of a meme come to life in some ways. She's a cultural remix that's repackaged. To me, she's the closest thing we've had to kind of half generational overtures. So yeah. Courtney would be almost exactly the same age as my sister because we have an age gap. So in terms of like people I could speak to who lived Courtney's life, basically, that would be my sister. And so like you're saying, I think it may also be an outreach to parents who are one generation kind of before us where, mm-hmm. where they're still raising children. I'm kind of excited to see what people do with her. We're in a lot of different groups where people are already creating Courtney tableaus. I'm nervous for her because 1986 is a big year for teen films and John Hughes films in particular. Courtney girl, like you have a lot to live up to. Pretty in pink is your time. I mean, wow, pretty in pink, iconic. Yeah, there's a lot with that. I think what's interesting too is like I was thinking about how my grandmother related to Molly and it wasn't like the nostalgia that like AG curated around Molly's accessories or her narrative was by like default humorous. And I think with Courtney, it does trend towards humor. Like all of her accessories are kind of playful and fun in a way that like Molly's life was somewhat more traumatic, like living through Mm. the war. And yet I do kind of wonder the ways that, is it because she lives in the eighties that, which is the founding year of Pleasant Company, that in a way it's like their meta narrative still has the blinders of the brand. Like in a way, like this is truly an eighties story in a way that they probably don't intend, which is like, it's a very particular representation of American history. And were they aware of that? Did they think about that? I don't know. I just want to know where Courtney's going to be when the Berlin Wall comes down. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's like this chick's going to live through so much. I'm scared yeah. of her. Like, and she's also going to be weird. Like, to me, someone my age, like like you're saying with half generations, I want an American Girl doll from 1996 <laughs> who has, like, a giant family desktop computer that everyone in the house is sharing. There's, yeah. like, you know, like, Mimi Saves the Day is literally a story about, like, helping your mom connect to the internet for the first time. Girl, that's not past tense for you. No, it's not. Like I don't mean to go there. You know what my life is. Like, yeah, this is, like, what happens. My dad sends me a text and is like, I emailed you. When are you responding to me? And I'm like, Dad, that's not an email. And he literally just (laughs) stares in his face. Um, But, like, that kind of technological story, which in many ways, like, this story is not that. Oh, and I I do think it's very, very interesting to set a lot of her life at an arcade. And we were fortunate to talk to a historian of gaming who kind of clued us in on things that I know I didn't know. So part of Courtney's plot is that she develops a game that features a strong woman at the center. And Courtney primarily games on Pac-Man when I have gotten this wrong. Lady or Ms. Pac-Man? I'm such a gamer. 
Miss. So she Ms. plays Mr. Pac-Man. Indeed. And, but, not to cut you off, but like that's no. the, what this historian was <laughs> saying was Ms. Pac-Man is the game that would have been most recent to her time and was way more popular and successful. So like she likely would have played Ms. Pac-Man. And see, I now know everything I ever need to know about that. I mean, I would love, here's the thing is like, I actually was nostalgic because I love Ms. Pac-Man. Ms. I have fond memories of playing (laughs) Ms. Pac-Man at Papa Gino's. Another cultural touchstone for me. Can't even speak about the demise of that brand. Too emotional at this time. But that's where I played my arcade games and all of that. So, like, it does hit me where I live. I wonder if kids now will even care about this, though, if they're going to be like, this is weird and, like, who cares? I think it's also, it's so of the pleasant mindset, you know, the way we're kind of parsing words over Miz. I still think of it as Lady Pac-Man in my head. I, I will move past that. But to think of kind of the way that gender parity and gender equality was presented in the 80s and early 90s. No, no, no. Now there's an arcade game for the ladies. She goes by Miz. Separate but equal. Very progressive. Very progressive. Her story is completely different. It's all her own. She's a girl boss. I mean, girl boss comes a bit later. But I, I'm excited to see where Courtney goes. I don't know if it's a gift or a punishment to give the listeners a clip from her music video. Let me just say this. I listen to this song on a loop. Not kidding. I'm a huge music person and MTV was very important in my life and VH1. That's another story. But I genuinely have FOMO for people just older than me, like your sister, who were oh, like alive and conscious and could consume tons of early MTV because I love music video culture, like pop up video, loved it all. But, you know, I listened to this song and I, as I said to you, this is a bop. I want this downloaded from Spotify right now on my phone. Where do I get this? I think on AmericanGirl.com. This is not SpawnCon. I'm just saying it's it's actually like we'll worth take listening the money, to. But yeah. It's very good. And it, it shows you like the graphics aesthetics are very saved by the bell. Like whoever made yes. this is very smart. Let's let's listen. Let's just vibe out. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. 
what does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So thanks for sitting down with us. We're so happy to talk with you and and hear all of your wisdom about the Postal Service and its many histories and what we should be thinking about now. Um, I guess we should say quickly why we're talking about the Postal Service at all. Allison, thoughts? Yes. And we had teased in our previous episode that we were inviting a male historian, M-A-I-L, which is an important distinction. That was confusing. It was. And for so, me. for yes. And we're not talking about chain mail. We're not talking about the Postal Service, the band. We are very interested in thinking about mail as a function of democracy and thinking a little bit about different cultures of friendship and communication. And particularly with the upcoming election, we're dedicating some space around kind of care and keeping of you topics for adults, thinking about the health of the Republic and thinking about different systems. And we got to kind of brainstorming dream guests. And I said, well, why don't we invite someone to talk about mail and to talk about the Postal Service? And we knew exactly who to invite. That's right. Guess what? Dreams come true. (laughs) We did it. The other RBG, the only RBG on this podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Thanks. It's funny you make the pun with the M-A-I-L versus M-A-L-E because like most of my postal historian friends do happen to be males like M-A-L-E and I bet they did not grow up with American Girl Dolls like I did. Wow. Excellent. And we asked you right out the gate because we have, I think, tact, but not always, you know, speed and in the right way. We asked you sort of like who you are in the American Girl universe and then who you maybe played with. So if you could talk a bit about that for our listeners. So I'm glad you asked because I originally read your question as a way to talk about the dolls that I felt connected to when I was young in the early to mid 90s. But then after I read your email and after I was listening to your podcast, you mentioned the doll named Rebecca, Mm -hmm. you know, my name. And I didn't know who that was because by 2009, I was in high school, not play. I was sort of more of a kid that played with dolls. And um, so then I looked her up just today and like she has the same uh, sort of Eastern European, Russian, Jewish ancestry as me. And like she immigrated around the same time that my great grandparents and great great grandparents uh, immigrated from over there to New York. So I was like, 
I literally have an American Girl doll who both looks like me and has my name, which was not the case when I was a kid, when I had Samantha because she looks like me. Mm. Um, But I was not a rich orphan. I mean, fortunately, I was neither of those two things, though I am from Rhode Island. So I do remember taking Samantha Parkington doll to the mansions like as a kid because history nerd. I guess that's just what we do. Why not? And then I had Kit Kitridge because my mom told me that Kit looked exactly like my uh, had recently passed away grandmother, Alice Epstein, who grew up in the 1930s and I guess looked like Kit Kitridge. And then I had Felicity, is her last name Merriman? Mm-hmm, is that right? Mm-hmm. Felicity, first name, last name basis. Felicity <laughs> Merriman is from the early United States. And I swear I've wanted to be an early Americanist since I was like young playing with dolls. Well, I need to know who had more fun at the mansions. Was it you or Samantha? I honestly was never into the mansions and I like wanted to Whoa. be because I knew I loved history. Now that I would be like critical of the aristocracy and like, total lack of, um, you know, wealth sharing in early 20th century Newport, Rhode Island. Now I would probably be more interested, but as a kid, I was more into the political history. Very interesting. So do you think looking back now that as an adult, looking back on the stories that you read and the dolls that you had of the ones that you were aware of as a child, do you still have the same identification or affinity with those dolls or has it changed a bit? Um, the big change for me. So like I said, I was only into them when I was pretty young because my motivation for playing with dolls was I literally pretended that they were a little sister because I wanted a little sister so badly. Like I literally told my mom that they were my sisters. <laughs> and then when I was nine, coincidence, well, almost nine, but I say nine because, you know, it's the American girl's age. My younger sister, Alexis, and my brother, Matthew, were born. But so Alexis Whoa. became like my real life American girl doll, actually baby sister. And then I stopped playing with the dolls. But but stayed interested in history. Excellent. So is what led you actually to pursue early American history and the field that you're in now? Early American history, because I like the origins of things. Also, I happened to grow up with, as mentioned, Felicity Merriman, also the TV show Liberty's Kids. And then in college, Classic. I had a couple good early Americanists professors. So I wanted to study the origins of things. And another longtime interest of mine had been religion and politics and the intersection between them. Mm -hmm. So I actually started graduate school to study early American religion state relations. And one of the major controversies was the Sunday mail controversy. And when I was like a second year attempting to to draft my first dissertation prospectus, I thought that I was going to do church-state relations and a few different controversies of the early American Republic. But literally two months into that research seminar, it finally occurred to me to Google, when did Sunday mail end? (laughs) And the answer was 1912. And I remember my now husband literally on the floor laughing that it hadn't occurred to me to look up that basic date, which is like what anyone else would do is (laughs) just Google it. But that just hadn't occurred to me. So I ended up doing my dissertation, which I'm still trying to finish on 
religion-state relations in the long 19th century via Sunday mail delivery, because the issue of Sunday and what I call Sundayism is a fascinating religion issue. And I think what I'm here to talk about now is that the post office, it was the state. And historian Richard John argued that, so I build upon his work and others, that the way that ordinary Americans, you know, ordinary with the heavy air quotes to them, they didn't call themselves ordinary, they were just Americans, they experienced the federal state via the post office for over 100 years. Hmm. Can can we ask you just to back up and talk about the what the Sunday Mail controversy was for maybe listeners who aren't aware of what that is? There was a guy who I think his first name oh his first name was Hugh and his last name was Wiley and he was postmaster in Washington County, Pennsylvania until he was required to give up going to church on Sunday. So that way he could deliver mail seven days a week on Sunday. And so I'm sure this is very personally difficult for Hugh Wiley, but that's why it became, that's not why it became a controversy. It became a controversy because these two sides, the, the very beginnings of the second great awakening of the early 19th century where people were like uh, voraciously interested in pursuing their Christian religion and the growth of the early American state and the post office act of the post office act of 1792, those two powerful movements converge and the incident with Hugh Wiley was just the trigger that set up a controversy where Congress was flooded with petitions from literally all across the country, like as far north as Maine, as far west as like Kansas, which is pretty far west. I don't think it was even a state yet when they were petitioning. And um, so Congress ended up debating it before the War of 1812. They decided to continue Sunday Mail for military interest in the War of 1812. And they did. But then the Sunday Mail controversy second wave picked up in the Jacksonian era, and it sort of held hands with abolitionism and also the temperance movement because the abolitionists, the people who wanted to end Sunday Mail and the people who wanted to end all alcohol tended to be the same people. It's a great book on that called Moral Minorities by Kyle Volk. But Mm. um, one of my key arguments is that the Sunday Mail controversy for religious minorities did not end with what's called the Johnson Report in 1830, which was when Senator Richard Mentor Johnson delivered a speech in Congress that was a report from the Committee on Post Office and Postal Roads. And he talked about how continuing Sunday mail was was imperative to religious freedom. Mm. So that ended the controversy for Christians. They, the Sundayists, as I call them, they lost. But then um, looking through the newspapers, the personal writings, and even more petitions of Saturday observers like Jewish Americans and Seventh-day Baptists and eventually Seventh-day Adventists, they always felt that Sunday mail and the possibility of ending it was one of the Sunday laws, which was also a big deal in the 19th century. And that Johnson report of 1830 continued to wield enormous power in their writings as a symbol of federally declared religious freedom. So the key takeaway there is that the pivotal moment in early American religious freedom history was from the Committee on Post Office and Postal Roads. 
Wow. I just feel like you taught me so much in like two minutes. So I'm just taking all that in. So as you were talking, Rebecca, I kept thinking back to a sort of different Mary. And I don't mean to kind of like put you on the spot. But when we first met, Mary was very interested in presidential campaign biographies. That's true. And sort of like yeah. using very interesting techniques to unpack and and look at great white man history again, kind of in the vein of what Alexis Coe and others have been doing in the past few years. And I think what's so cool about your topic is you've taken something that almost everyone has to have some kind of experience with that's so bureaucratic, but also so ordinary. And yet it's one of these few things that we don't actually need a lot of paperwork maybe to engage with. Like if you want a driver's license, you're practically scraping off skin cells to prove who you are, but anyone can drop something in the mail. And that's so cool. One of my chapters is on enslaved persons in the mail. The chapter's tentative title is Slavery's Post Office. There was a lot of interaction between the post office and slavery because of precisely what you said, which is literally everyone has some interaction with the mail. And in terms of doing the history of the American state, Um, you really see it at the margins, which is the population that is enslaved. So that's the focus of one of my dissertation chapters. Um, But back to the point, what you said about like presidential elections, I think my equivalent of using sort of like a top-down lens into a much broader story is I try to do socio-political reading of federal records. And since I live in Washington, D.C., well, I live outside of D.C. in Arlington, Virginia. But prior to the pandemic, the vast majority of my research was at the National Archives downtown. Hmm. I'm kind of wondering when you we talk about citizenship, I'm really interested in what you mentioned about enslaved Um, people using the mail and operating with the mail. But I'm also thinking more broadly about the relationship between the postal service and mail and citizenship. So if we think about citizenship as a series of rights and obligations, which is how a lot of historians have framed it in many ways as studying the early republic, how do you see the postal service fitting into that? And do you notice any changes over time? An important distinction about words that I think also answers your question is that it was not the U.S. Postal Service until the 1970s. And I am not an expert on the post-1970s post office. I'm like hesitant to even, I like never say USPS. I even say the post office when I'm talking about it today, which is like not how people talk. That's like historian talk. But it was just called the post office department um, or just the post office. And it just wasn't the USPS. It was a major governmental department. People did not see it. And I can't emphasize this enough. It was not just one of the possible options, like how if I want to mail something now, I think, should I use the post office? Should I use UPS or should I use FedEx? To be honest, I'm super guilty of using FedEx all the time because it's directly outside of my apartment. And I guess I'm lazy. But the post office department had the monopoly on communication. And that diminished a bit with the telegraph. And the inventions of the telegraph and and ultimately the telephone over the course of the 19th century contributed to ending mail on Sundays in 1912. So when you hear some people want to end mail on Saturdays, they like think that all of the technological advancements since then would. It's kind of amazing that we still have Saturday mail. And not only because 
talking about the Sabbath male controversy, like I observe the Jewish Sabbath. So there's still male on my Sabbath. But it's kind of amazing that male is so integral to American society that despite all of these technological innovations, we still have male six days a week and not less. But who knows who long who knows how long that will last. And honestly, I don't have a strong opinion on whether Saturday male should continue. I sort of see both sides. I think, you know, if you, depending on where you live in the country, like where we live, so many of the roads are old post roads. And just thinking about the ways that male connected people, right? So you talked about kind of the male being an important nexus for people who are on the margins. Um, is there a huge difference between how powerful people use mail? Like were early presidents using mail in ways that are maybe kind of interesting and we wouldn't know about? I just, I can't picture a president now dropping something in a post office, but I have to imagine that correspondence was huge for at least the first century. No presidents come to mind right away, but enslavers come to mind. Mm. So in 1802, in the immediate aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, in which the enslaved populations burned the island to the ground and built upon it a nation where they were free, that terrified white Southern plantation owners in the American South. And so they persuaded Congress to enact a law banning people who were not white from carrying mail. So that's in terms of like people with power and influence and mail. I, I see that as a significant moment, the Post Office Act of 1802. And then the act that reaffirmed that was the Post Office Act of 1810, which is the same one that officially started Sunday mail. Like, and I forgot to mention that earlier, but it affirms that Sunday mail would be a thing, mail seven days a week. Hmm. And then after 1810, the so people who were enslaved were technically not allowed to be mail carriers, but over time, um, that wasn't the case mainly because the enslavers were extraordinarily lazy, were not willing to do their own work. Many times, enslavers were the powerful people in their communities, and also the postmasters were powerful in their communities, so naturally, there was some overlap of uh of postmasters who also, who also owned people, they would coerce those people into carrying their mail. Sometimes even mail that sold those people. Hmm. Like there, there's one famous example of that, that the postal museum has. And if there's one example, I mean, I'm sure there were many more. And at the same time, the post office, um, served as a way to keep people enslaved tragically, just because that's how they would send advertisements or mail about like punishments or corresponding when enslaved people ran away in search of freedom. But at the same time, since like, like everything with slavery, it's like a push and pull because the actual enslaved people who were coerced into carrying mail, they would hear information while they were at the post office. Booker T. Washington says that in his memoir, he literally says that the plantation where he was enslaved was extremely close to a post office and that the black people there received information before the white people did because they were at the post office. So that was an important source of power for them and just also shows how integral the post office was for the sending and receiving of information. And um, when I was thinking about this question after your email, I actually wrote down that 
information plus the ability to disseminate it equals power. Hmm. So the information itself is not necessarily power. But when you combine that with the ability to disseminate it, which for the vast majority of American history was facilitated through the post office, that is power. Definitely. I mean, I'm wondering, I don't want to make you uh, offer any opinions about what's happening right now with the Postal Service, but do you see any connections between recent understandings or thoughts about the Postal Service and the histories that you study? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> In fact, phenomenologically, it was just bizarre when I used to see my dissertation and going on Twitter as separate events, but suddenly all the information on Twitter, like a few weeks ago when this dominated the news cycle, that seems like just a continuation of the same story. I mm. mean, one of the central themes is that the current policies. So it's not a coincidence that the federal government has been weakening the post office when it's a major employer of people of color, which Congresswoman Ayanna Presley pointed out in a Hill hearing. And that stood out to me because immediately after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, the post office immediately became one of the primary employers of emancipated persons because it was federal. The United States had just won the Civil War. And frankly, they had some experience with it because they were working in it when they weren't allowed to be because they had to, because otherwise they would be murdered. Um, so that's one central strand is that continuing story of African-Americans in the post office. But another one is I was just really surprised when President Trump called the post office a joke because you can call it many things. I mean, the post office, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but they lost a card from my aunt for my birthday that she said had a Barnes and Noble gift card in it. And like, I would have loved to have that. So, but that's because the federal government has um, underfunded it, right? Not blaming, not blaming it on the post office. Um, like the post office is, is many things. You can complain that there's a long line, but it's not a joke. It has a serious history. And what happens when you have something that's central to American society and the structure of government and then attempt to take it away, there are so many unforeseen consequences. And this was just like unbelievable to me because what dominated the news cycle, it must have been last April, was when the president was cutting funds from the post office or he was refusing to bail it out, which is not the same thing. He was refusing to bail it out. And I didn't know why. But then a few months later, when it became clear that during the pandemic, we needed mail voting, um, voting by mail for the election. And then it became clear probably why he tried to tamper with it. Um, it just shows us how if we take away the post office, there will be so many unforeseen consequences that like I, even as someone who, um, well, now I'm working full time, but then I was like working on postal history full time. And I didn't even realize that this would be central to the election and potential voter disenfranchisement of people who need to do mail-in voting. And so when you take away the post office, there are unlimited unforeseen consequences because it's that embedded into society. I, I think your analysis, which is brilliant, is only missing one thing, which is, you know, we really need to care more about the cruise ship and airline industry, which I think needed the trillion dollar bailout more 
Nobody cares about cruises. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> of course. Of course. I'm I'm not serious. What you were saying, I just heard an echo because we were talking previously this year to suffrage historian Allison Lang and something she said, which was just so, so succinct and, and so perfect was almost as soon as um, some women were enfranchised with the 19th Amendment in 1920, people began demeaning the vote almost immediately. And it's something I had seen in newspaper coverage, but hadn't articulated or thought in that exact way, which was people saying, well, voting doesn't really matter. Voting doesn't really do very much. And that it happens in that same moment as women getting it. And what you're saying about this being like a highly diverse element of federal bureaucracy, it makes perfect sense that it's been attacked over and over again. It's also one of the few ways um, when you think of people who have been kept out of so many other structures for support, for financial lending, and for basically financial strength, the fact that they have to fund people's retirement and the fact that this primarily is made up of a diverse workforce, it's not really that surprising it's being attacked now. Big time. Not to take us on a hard pivot, and but I am going to do that. Um, we started by talking about American Girl, your affinity for Felicity Merriman, which we could spend hours talking about <laughs> her mismanagement of her own life and those of maybe others in her life as well. Something but, about a horse. Something about a horse. She she is a mail carrier, is she not? She collects Ben's secret letter. Wow. Oh my goodness. I have to go back after I, I want to discover, um, meet Rebecca Rubin, but after that I should return to Felicity. I mean, be careful. That's all we'll say. You know, there's a secret element around male in both Felicity and Josefina. If you recall in both books, they have sort of entanglements with young men and their secret note passing. Wow. I mean, in that case, of information is power. <laughs> that's that's true. I yeah. mean, that is true. Wow. 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 I don't even want to think about Felicity and, and the sequ- the most poorly drawn map I've ever seen in my <laughs> yeah. life. That's my Ben. Um, but what I was going to ask about was the way people use mail to kind of support Friendship, because friendship is something we care a lot about on this show, and it's in the books quite a bit. It's a big American girl energy, big American girl theme. So I'm kind of wondering, like, if you can just sort of make some connections, offer us some histories on, you know, the ways that friendship was maintained and supported through the mail, any that stick out in your mind, and then even some connections to now. Like a lot of people stay in touch with email or texting or whatever kind of differences you see, similarities the Just first thing that comes to mind is the early American Jewish community was already a diasporic community. Um, Isaac Leeser was a big continue Sunday mail guy. He didn't say that specifically, but he was very against Sunday closing laws. And he sent letters about it with his friends in South Carolina and in Ohio. And in all those places, they were challenging the courts to... Um, to resist Sunday closing laws. Hmm. And he was good friends with Rebecca Gratz, who's a woman I mentioned in my dissertation because she also had strong opinions on Sunday laws and was Jewish in Philadelphia. And she just wrote all the time. She actually didn't really have a career, partially because she was a woman, also because she was somewhat affluent. So she basically 
did local Jewish organizing. She volunteered as a midwife and she sent lots and lots of letters. And that's what Rebecca Gratz did in Philadelphia. In more recent times, when I was defending my dissertation prospectus, they wanted to make sure I liked my topic because apparently that's a good idea if you want to do it for a long time. And I said, well, I associate both Sabbath and mail with summer camp, which is something that I loved and was very important to me. And so I remember one time when I was like a 12-year-old camper, I sent 14 letters in a one-hour rest hour, and I felt overly accomplished for that. You for, you wrote and sent 14 letters in one hour. They weren't good letters, but I wrote to 14 people that I knew at home in Rhode Island from summer camp in New Hampshire. I used to see how many letters I could write, and then a lot of kids didn't want to write home, so they'd like share their stamps, which in retrospect was quite generous of them. Wow. That's an intense level of correspondence. I'm very impressed by that. I'm wondering if you think there's an economic barrier in a similar or different way now with communication among friends, because, you know, not to bring Elon Musk up into this podcast, and I regret it immediately, but one of his projects is to put enough satellites into space that he can give free internet to like every community. Like we won't even go there, but you know, thinking about he is, he has a somewhat misguided solution to a real problem, which is that internet is really kind of a utility at this point, not a right. Um, and, but not everyone has access to it. Without internet, you can't participate in these cultures of correspondence that are based on, you know, email, like say Twitter DMs, TikTok question mark, God knows what else. But in the 19th century, isn't it true that if you sent and received letters, didn't you have to pay when you received a letter? Yes. Yeah, that was the case for a while. I don't even know when that ended. Um, And as a result, sometimes people just didn't get their letters. And post offices were constructed over the course of the 19th century. So there was this one document I found when I was looking at the War of 1812, where there was this tavern somewhere in New England that no one would pick up their letters. And they just kept them on the shelves with with the booze. That's amazing. (laughs) I was always like fearing though that in the 19th century, someone was about to get like a marriage proposal Mm -hmm. or like new just inherited a huge fortune from a relative they've never met before. And it's like, it's just sitting in a letter that you won't pay to receive, or maybe you can't pay to receive. It feels like the Charles Dickens book that was never written. I'm not saying it should be, (laughs) but I'm just saying like that. I'm putting that out there. But back to your point, if you apply the reasoning behind making the post office, actually, you know what, here's something I feel strongly about. So the post office of the post office act of 1792, one of its key interventions was that the purpose of the post office was to disseminate information, not to make a profit. Hmm. Previously, before the American Revolution, like, you know, the Stamp Act, when you learn about the um, the origins of the American Revolution, Britain was trying to make a profit through the mail. And to a large extent, they succeeded. That's how they ran their mail delivery. But in the U.S., they believed in disseminating information for the purpose of an educated citizenry. While citizenry was white men with property. If you take their reasoning and apply it to today, internet should be free because it's an equity issue. And especially during a pandemic, I know one day last March, like 
the most stressful two days of my year was when my internet in my apartment uh, stopped working for reasons that remain unclear. We still, we literally never figured out whether it was just us or our building, but we think that it was both. Um, and so I ended up teaching from outside at a cafe. The cafe was closed, but I like had the passport word from when I used to go there. <laughs> It's an equity issue. 100%. And if you use the reasoning from the early republic about the mail, internet should be free. And I I don't really follow Elon Musk's stuff, and my opinions on private versus public are pretty different. Um, (laughs) That's for the best, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, both that my reading of the original 1792 Act as well says that the Postal Service should not be turning a profit. So all these attempts to defund the Postal Service to to then privatize it, of course, have in mind some Mm -hmm. kind of um, for-profit scheme, or at least it will be profitable for the companies who get those government contracts. And at um, all the points that I study, there's always someone saying to run it like a business. And you know who tried that? The Confederate States of America. And they totally failed for a lot of reasons. And one of them was because they attempted to run their post office like a business and expected it to fund itself. And it did not. And they mm-hmm. also ended mail on Sunday and had much less reliable communication than the union. I'm not saying that's why they lost, but it didn't help them. This is like the Civil War intervention that I need. Somebody (laughs) saying like, have you ever thought about the Postal Service and the Confederacy? Joe Edelman has done some good work on it. He wrote a couple like public history articles. Um, I wish I remembered what they were called, but I, I will also have a lot on that in my dissertation. Whoa, love There's it. nothing, uh, nothing in my archival research has been like Hannah Arendt's banality of evil more than Confederate post office documents. <laughs> Oh my God. What can that's the most tantalizing thread I've ever heard about the postal service or somebody's dissertation. Yeah, like don't threaten me with a good time to download. I know, this like, the what day are you talking out. about? Yeah. I, I keep thinking as you're talking, if you were and people have made this point before about libraries especially, but if you were to propose the post office or the library, or I think at this point, even like public busing and education as a fresh concept it would be laughed out of Congress as a communist plot. Like the things that we do have that exist purely for, in theory, the public good. It's so interesting to me the way that the current administration, their different relationships to things that do theoretically exist for the public and the way that certain leaders in that administration, it's its really floored me, truly don't have a concept of public service. And, and I don't say that as a personal attack. I think it's an ethic that exist to varying degrees among people. But when some of them found out that you could never make more than a certain amount as a public servant, the response from the administration was, well, of course they don't attract talent because to them, it was literally inconceivable that a person who would really care about something would do a job not to maximize profit, but to serve a community, a country to serve other people. Like that ethic is so contrary to, I think what a lot of what's made decisions for the past, not just four years, but really 30 to 40, I think. I guess Mm -hmm. it's no coincidence. Speaking of librarians, our school librarian at the school where I work, Emily Dowd, is an avid listener of your podcast. So hello, Emily Emily Dowd. And also uh, libraries and librarians are awesome. Like, Shout out to you, girl. I mean, listen, I married a librarian. That's how devoted I am (laughs) to this cause. (laughs) 
Like I barely even know her. Like we don't really speak, but I'm just trying to support libraries as best I can. Could you imagine if that was true? <laughs> and I'm like, listen, actually the say- whole reason I'm doing this is to like fund my own Hallmark movie on this similar thread. Yes. What were you going to say? In, in like a genuine moment of serendipity. So I am less scrupulous than Mary and I give out our address to like anyone who asks prior to us getting a PO box. I know she's say she's appropriately shaking her head. And I had forgotten that I gave uh, my home address to listener Sarah some time ago. And she said, I'm going to send you a box of American girl crafts and amusements. And I said, right on, you know, and, and people do this occasionally. And she sent within the package, some postcards that, you don't need to know what time it is now. Just know that I literally received these about an hour ago. And I want to show this, not a visual oh medium, I know. I want to show this like very wonderful kit postcard to the two of you to just get a reaction. Oh I my goodness. See. It's a literal oh, mailbag episode. This just came out of your oh mailbag yes. for the mailbag episode. Oh my God. This is wild. I can't see the image and it's like, maybe it's a technological. It's it's Kit and a good friend. Oh, under, oh. Yeah, for now. And then there's what we might call longing looks between them. Maybe. The other one shows Molly reading and opening Molly this McIntyre, box. Molly McIntyre. Molly McIntyre. Opening Ooh. this box was so special because we deeply love all the different ways that people get in touch with us but opening a box right now from someone who also gives me like public health assurances it just hits different it does it's very special to us it's very special when people reach out and I know I'm not scrupulous and I should not give out my home address however that ship that mailbag (laughs) sailed and it really is so special she says look at this awesome example of friendship she means Kit and her friend, but I think she means us in this postcard too. So it's very wow. Thank you, Sarah in Dallas, Texas. You're wonderful. She said, "Okay, I said I'd only write one." She wrote two. Um, I don't care. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm glad you could be part of our our mailbag as well. That's very special. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's something different with your friends or just in life about sending snail mail. And you know, like I've started my pen pal program, which you know is. <laughs> It's like it's growing. <laughs> Rebecca looks really nervous for us. Rebecca, like, look, I use I'm not. Rebecca's like, if I don't use FedEx, I'm, I'm let, leaving the pot. You Has anyone ever that's exactly out? what I was thinking? I was feeling so guilty for how often I crawled oh my to the God, Rebecca. My don't. Rebecca, I'm not sure I can welcome. I would love to welcome you into the pen pal program, but like, we, it has to be for USPS, if you know what I'm saying. And, I just, I would love to convert you to bring you into the pen pal program, which is like my secret program that Allison like doesn't want to join. And that's like fine. She doesn't want to be my pen pal. I send you mail. I'm not doing this. I would do it through the post office or I guess post 1970s USPS. And I'd even hang them in my classroom. Oh my God. All right. Look, we'll get in touch. We'll do this. I do send mail to Allison. I send it to my God cat, Ray, who I, I just have to hope Allison reads him my letters because you know, I'm trying to stay in touch, keep that connection going during this pandemic. It's hard. Rebecca, Speaking of okay. the God Cat Ray, people used to send animals <laughs> and like people. Excuse me, what? <laughs> like, I'm not Wait, living sure. animals? I'm living not- or dead? Yeah, no, alive. Like this Oof. is not Schrodinger's cat. This is like God Cat Ray. Um, they also sent children in the mail mm. until the early 1900s. That's upsetting. 
when you think about it, you know, too, I'm thinking of Henry Box Brown, who mails himself to freedom. That's right. You know, everything you've been saying, I think our listeners are really just going to absolutely appreciate like all the different connections you've made between these things. And I, I don't mean to like diminish any of that, but do you think that the first American Girl Postmaster would be Kit or Kit and why? <laughs> Can it be Rebecca Rubin? Because yeah, she's my new favorite. Of course. That's great. Of course. Wonderful. I think Molly would take things too personally and like launch vendettas if Molly would be like, I guess, working for the government, opening people's mail <laughs> preemptively. And she yeah. would just be like, this person, you need to like take them away. Well, like, if it's not too like time travel-y, either of them could fill in on Saturdays when oh. Rebecca Rubin oh. observes Sabbath, which to be honest is what, what people should have done instead of ending Sunday mail in the first place. Wow. Love that. I love your like hard stances on male related issues that I didn't know about before this podcast, but I feel like I'm with you now. I have been educated and I've taken on your worldview. So in a way you've indoctrinated me. So thank you for that. And the feeling is mutual. I didn't even know that Rebecca Rubin was an American Girl doll until I received the invitation to talk to you guys. So thank you so much for You're welcome. And we would love to maybe like ha- introduce you to the real life Rebecca Rubin someday, mm. who we also know, other listener of this show. Her real name is Rebecca Rubin. She's a great scholar of American Girl. Great person. Yeah. So wow. I know. World's colliding. Quick question. Have you ever made a zine, sent a zine, received a zine, know what a zine is? What's a zine and is FedEx have? <laughs> How dare you? We're, I'm shaking my finger at you. Rebecca can use Fe- Let her have FedEx. No, I'll give I up. I gotta FedEx. think about it. That's I mean, another, I gotta think about it. It's another gift you all have given me is inspiration to walk a couple extra blocks to the post office. Well, you know, listen, we're in 2020 is like just a garbage fire. So do whatever you need to do to be kind to yourself. That's my ultimate um, life goal these days. Barnes and but- Noble should have like a mail slot. If Barnes and Noble <laughs> had like a little post office and honestly, like in that throughout the sense. 19th century, mail would be at the local county store or like wherever people bought their like tobacco mm-hmm. or whatever they would go out a for. Duncan. Yeah, yeah, I like, mean, I exactly. feel like mm-hmm. if there was a mail slot at Duncan, I would be all set. <laughs> we should go back to putting, uh, this is not an informed opinion, but I think that more people would use the post office if it was more convenient. And for me, if it were at Barnes & Noble, that would be convenient because I go there a lot. And same with like New Englanders and Duncan. Yes. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. But just by way of segue, one of the things that we're going to be offering all of our listeners and people can contribute to, um, we'll have contributed to by this point, I think by the time this comes out, mm-hmm. is a zine on the theme of Uncle Guard. A zine is merely just a word for a homemade magazine. So it has its earliest origins in the 1950s, actually in sci-fi fan culture, but it was quickly co-opted by music fans and also famously Riot Girl fans in the early 90s as a way to kind of like put your own opinion out there without having to interact with or get the approval of mm-hmm. official like publications or news media. You could just literally put your opinions down and then mail it to a friend who is also a fan of that band or whatever it was. But it's become like this major, like in the culture of correspondence, it's something that definitely exists within like girlhood culture. So we're happy to kind of bring it back. Now it exists like in 
um, like actual homemade zines, but also digital zines. So we're going to make a digital zine with Uncle Guard content. I'm very cool. excited. We'll share it with you. I don't know. You could pass it on. That's like more of zine culture. I'm intrigued. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, Rebecca, if people want to reach out to you or if they, you know, want to like share in some FedEx support, you know, (laughs) like much in the way there's a hidden arrow within the FedEx letters, like what is the hidden arrow to your social presence if you would like to share it? Minus the FedEx. My Twitter is (laughs) the other RBG. My website is RebeccaBrennerGram.com, which also has my email and some of my work. Very cool. Well, people should definitely check out your stuff. We're very excited to have been able to talk to you. Thank you so much. So nice to meet you both in person. Well, as in person as we can get. (laughs) I think it counts. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for Allison and I this episode. We so, so enjoy hearing from you, and we wish we could all meet up at the mall, but for now, we're going to have to keep it virtual. So feel free to reach out to Allison at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and at Mary Mahoney123 on Twitter. We love it when you follow the show, and Allison does a great job with our social media. So check that out at American Girls Podcast on Instagram and at A Girls Pod on Twitter. As this is a male episode, we just want to say we so love all of the things you send us. Now that we have this P.O. box, you can find that on our website, www.americangirlspod.com. There you can also find links to our Patreon, where we release an extra episode a month, and our merch store. Thank you so much to everyone who's listening, to Ms. Pac-Man, Courtney, and our future copyright lawyer. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode.